Miss Intoza Kishange, playwright, poet, and Obi award-winning author of the play for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. In the studio with me is Dr. Carol Marie Webster, a visiting scholar at the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life at Columbia University. She's also conductor, instructor, and co-producer of our series on Critical Joy. Well, welcome back to Afrobeat Radio. Thank you, We. It's a pleasure to be back, as always. Yes, yes. it's always. And it's a pleasure to um, be here on this occasion, though a sad occasion. I will miss Entasaki Shange's uh, physical presence on this planet. Um, but I know that her spirit is vibrantly stirring the ethos, pushing us towards poetry and activism in new ways and some trouble yes yeah she loves that yes all right also joining us is dr halifu Oshumari. she joins us on the phone uh, good evening dr Oshumari. good evening we and good evening carol good evening it's good to have you back on afrobit radio thank you and uh it was may 17th that we were on your show so that was just five months ago. Yes, indeed. Dr. Oshimari is Professor Emerita in the Department of African American and African Studies at University of California, Davis, and was the director of AAS from 2011 to 2014. She has been a dancer, a choreographer, arts administrator, and scholar of black popular culture for more than 40 years and has written several books, including Dancing in Blackness, which was um, the theme, really, of our last conversation between the three of us, which included herself, Halifo Shumari, the now late Intozake Shange, and myself. Um, Intozake Shange was a playwright, poet, activist, and dancer. As a self-proclaimed black feminist, she addressed issues relating to race and feminism in much of her work. She was born Paulette Linda Williams in Trenton, New Jersey on October 18, 1948. Intozage Shange died in her sleep on October 27, 2018 at 70 years of age. She was best known for the Obie Award winning play for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. A prolific writer. Her books, her writings, her authorings, her conversations are too numerous to discuss. But as we prep that first excerpt that we would like to share with you or reshare with you, I'd like to invite. Dr. Halifu Oshimari, I'd like to invite her first words on the occasion of this tribute. It's supposed to be we're celebrating the life of a friend, and in life, you are one of her closest friends. So let's yes, start I with was, your I thoughts. Was. Well, when I first got the word, which was the morning um, after she had passed, you know, of course, I was devastated. We've known each other since 1973. She gave me my African name. Um, we've always stayed close. I've 
directed and choreographed several of her plays, including for colored girls. And so it was a few days, it was quite devastating to feel that transition. But um, I had to elevate my consciousness to really look at the larger Intozaki Shange, even beyond my friend, and, and realize that she did her job while she was here. Uh, that, in fact, she was one of the greatest writers of the 20th and 21st century. Um, she, she wrote 15 plays, 19 poetry collections, six novels, five children's books, three collections of essays, and um, she was just so prolific and had so much to say. Even when she, uh, in 2010, got a serious form of neuropathy and um, was paralyzed and had to fight her way back to being able to to move again, she uh, got a, um, a computer program where she was able to speak into the computer and continue to write. Um, so she was a warrior woman. Um, she was, you know, uh, also a very delicate uh, black female who loved deeply, and um, she loved her people. And I think that that really came out in her work, and she really wanted to empower the next generation of, of uh, particularly uh, women of color. Carol Murray Webster, you made it possible for all four of us to connect. Well, you were my bridge to both Halifush Murray and Ntozaka Shange. Yes. Well, your thoughts first. My thoughts with Enthesaki's passing, I just feel like um, she had truly, as um, Halifu had said, done her work. She had fully done her work here. And I am pleased that she passed softly in her sleep. These last years have been uh, difficult health years for her, and she was rallying back. But if she had to go, it is the best way to have gone. Uh -huh. um, and I think that she is a, a, a woman warrior, again, as Halifu has mentioned, and she wielded her words and her pen to recraft the way we engage as human beings, the way African diaspora women saw themselves within society and the way society saw them. So she really penned her way through the space that has left indelible marks, yes? Uh, she, will, she, she is someone that will be missed but her legacy is here and it's strong for people like myself and the younger generation of me to stand on and to move on. Well, yes. I do agree with both of you because I do remember that when I, like I said in that conversation that we had in March, that when I arrived in New York in the early 90s, uh, I think that was 91 or so, one of the 
names that had become a cultural, a commonplace name, a cultural institution in New York City was Ntozake Shange's name. And the play for Colored Girls, of course, you know. So it's kind of like part of my own cultural landscape of New York City, part of my memory. Mm. And so in some ways, I guess I could say it's an, it's an end of an era of mm. sorts. That's how I feel. Yeah. About yeah. about her. Yeah. About her person. But anyway, so we have this except cued. I think it's important because we get to hear her voice, so she's present in this conversation. Yes. But also yeah, very good. yeah, um also we we get to witness a very strong voice, the rallying into Zaki. Yeah. That we all saw together that I met in person which which was great yes. right so i I, I want much. to begin this conversation um with you know with your friendship and reading halifu shumari's book clearly she wrote a lot about you and your collaboration so I, i'm not really going to talk about that because i want people to buy the book so that they can read it themselves <laughs> Yeah, don't give too much away. <laughs> exactly. But I'm curious, what was it that attracted you to each other that's beyond your creative collaborations that sustained your friendship for so long? Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. You want to start? Okay, I, I'll start. Well, I... I um, Grew up in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. Grew up in San Francisco and moved to Oakland as an adult. Uh, I um, was recently back in the Bay Area after having lived in Europe for three years and uh, dancing professionally here in New York with the Rod Rogers Dance Company. So when I returned home after approximately a five-year hiatus away, um, I started hearing about this uh, woman having this show on uh, a radio station similar to this. It was a, a community-oriented radio station Kepu. in Kepu uh -huh. in the Bay Area. And the kind of music that she was playing, the eclecticism of the music and the, the poetry that was being read on her show really made me stand up, listen, and say, who is this woman? Uh -huh. And um, uh, as they say, the rest is history. We, uh, I was teaching dance. She started taking my dance classes. Um, there was a burgeoning um, uh, 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 scene on uh, in the Bay Area of dancers, Ed Mock, Raymond Sawyer, and Intozaki was not only interested in her writing, but also dance and how they intersected. And so it was just natural that we began to uh, to collaborate and come together and find a personal friendship. Yeah, the radio show is called The Original Aboriginal Dancing Girl. Mm. <laughs> And I, I, uh, I would have um, Monday or Wednesday nights when I would have an hour of live musicians and improvisation, and I would do poetry. Or I'd invite poets to come improvise poetry on the radio show. So it was like having a, a jazz solo on the air, like they used to have in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping to recreate that sensation 
for the listeners in the Bay Area who I was sure had never experienced that. I think I was right. They hadn't. But um, you were right. I had a great I had a great time doing that radio show. Cape Who is called Poor People's Radio, and uh, it was wonderful because we reached out to the community. There are lots of community uh, like list like cable like cable community stations. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of, of community people having their own shows, so it was really wonderful that station. Mm-hmm. And I I I did meet Holly Fu in her dance class. It was really funny because I had seen her dance in New York when she was at a, a Pharoah Sanders concert. And I had seen her just all of a sudden jump up in the audience and start dancing. I said, I wonder who that woman is. She's remarkable. I got to San Francisco and I saw a sign for Haitian dance. I said, well, I haven't studied Haitian dance. I've studied Cuban and Brazilian, but I haven't taken any Haitian. All those black people are in Haiti. I should take that class. <laughs> so I, um, so I signed up for that class. And lo and behold, who was teaching me? But the woman I had seen in New York dancing. Mm-hmm. So it was Halifa who was teaching that class. And I thought it was serendipitous, and the guy had ordained that I should be her friend. Mm, interesting. And and that story about uh, her seeing me dance in New York. Uh, with Pharaoh Saunders as a spontaneous dance improvisation is something I had totally forgotten. Uh, I do write about in the book of working with Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry at the Artist House Mm -hmm. back in 1972, but I had forgotten that scene uh, with Pharaoh Saunders. So when Zaki reminded me of it, and that's the first time that she uh, had seen me dance, that that brought back a whole other level of memory of uh, our first connection right here in New York. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of relationships, and there are different ways that friendships can be intimate, and and uh, it could be, again, because of collaborations, it could be with regards to complementarity in, in people's personalities, or even, you know, oppositionality. So what is it about your friendship that... uh, New and selected poems of Intozaki Shange, you were both survivalists. You had to survive. You had to push the boundaries, both of you. And we will get into that further in our conversation, you know. But what was what was that thing that kept your relationship together? I mean, through the years, through collaborations, through distance and geography, it's uh-huh. it's very interesting to have two sisters, two elders, talk about their time together, and I think it's a thing that. A lot of young women would, would like to hear. All right, so that's um Shange's voice. You can hear a strong voice, right? In that conversation with Halifo Shumari, who is now on the phone with us, what strikes me about meeting her the first time was not just the strength of her voice, but also her sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And immediately I knew that she was one person um, that had a wicked sense of humor. 
you know. Um, but also what struck me about her was her fidelity in her friendship. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Can you talk about it um, as someone who was a lifelong friend but also a collaborator? Can you talk about that? Can you talk about um, who she was? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, she was a real lover of life. And when she connected with a, another human being, it was real. She didn't play games. And, you know, oftentimes, of course, that might get her into trouble <laughs> because many people play games mm. when it comes to care and love. But when she did meet up with someone who could feel her sincerity and reciprocate, as um, I did in terms of our friendship, you know, it, it, it was real and it was everlasting. And that's, I think, why um, no matter space or time that um, came between us, whenever we would talk or get together physically it was like no time had passed at all because real love is just that it is timeless and um that's what we had we had a timeless friendship a timeless love for each other and the fact that we were both very creative people um and i trusted her creative instincts implicitly and he trusted mine implicitly, that only added to the friendship. And so when it came time to collaborate, we just had this, this deep connection and this trust of each other. Uh, I remember in, it was 1985, um, the University of Mississippi of all places was trying to show its liberal um, uh, uh, development, I guess you would say, at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, that they were going to put on an Intazaki Shange play. She was supposed to go and direct it, and I uh, uh, was only called at the last moment by her because she became very ill. She came down with the flu or something, and she needed someone that she could trust to immediately fill in. Uh, for her as the director and choreographer of this play called From Okra to Green, A Different Kind of Love Story. Mm. Now, I had performed in the play um, uh, in 1981 in New York at the kitchen. Diane McIntyre choreographed it. Tulani Davis had directed it. Mm. She, she played in it with one of the big Hollywood actors today, Richard Lawson. Uh, she had brought myself, Ed Mock, and Elvia Marta, three Bay Area dancers, to come to New York and perform in this play. So I knew the play. It had gone through some revisions. And she said, can you please just go there and do this for me? I don't want them to cancel the production. I can't do it physically right now. And she trusted me to go there and, and, and do what she would do. And uh, that was because we had... Um, respected each other as artists, but also because we had a deep trust as friends. There is a sense that um, dance was a central core to your knowing each other and your friendship. 
and the way in which dance connected the two of you. Can you speak just a little bit more about that? Well, um, she saw the word in a way that um, was like a dance. If you look at her written poetry on the page, it dances. Mm -hmm. uh, the way in which she changed the language to take the Queen's English and make it her own, change the spelling, like just the word enough in for colored girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow is enough is spelled in you uh uh us F, yes you know just like she you know you would pronounce it and and she she took charge of language in that kind of way of revamping it for her use and um she saw it as a as movement as as a dance and she saw dance as language and I did, too. And so we had that connection of how the word and movement are interrelated. And he took formal dance classes so she would become better at the art form of dance itself because she had a deep respect for it. And so she always wove that sense of movement into the way that she wrote and the way the word fell on the page. Yeah. She, uh, in her saying, um, you were teaching Haitian dance and um, uh, all the black people in Haiti, she wants to do that. There is a, a very nice kind of um, uh, child innocence in the mm -hmm. way she encountered dance, but it's also similar in terms of the way she encountered the words. There is a, I don't want to say, it, probably innocence isn't the right word. It's like a child spirituality, a, a sense mm -hmm. that it's like, that opens up and bursts out both the dance and the words so that they can uh, meet in uh, much deeper ways than certainly the culture that we live in wants them to interact. Yeah. Yes, and, and because she looked at life in terms of breaking it down to its simplest components. So, you know, that's why I think her sense of humor that uh, we uh, uh, called from our interview is all a part of that. Um, she felt that we complicate life so much as adults, but that it's much simpler mm -hmm. than we want to make it if we get to that almost childlike sense of simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, and so when she um, was talking about Haiti, having all these black people dancing and that she hadn't studied that, so since they were black and she was black, she, 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 she felt like she should do it. That's it. That is that simplest connection, that you don't have to complicate it with all kind of African diaspora theory. Hmm. All you have to do is look at the simplest elements, connect with that, and move forward. You're absolutely right in terms of the mobility, um, both in how that is central to her work, you know, mm -hmm. um, to her life mm -hmm. as a dentist, but also to her life as a writer. Mm -hmm. But there was something in, in the way she wrote that, that disrupted the formality of language. Right. Right. Or, and the ownership of language. Right. Exactly. She wanted to revise it in a way so that it was hers and did not belong to anyone else, that she could take 
the Queen's English, as I said before, and make it her own and communicate with people on a, on a much more direct level. That was her way of disrupting the norm and, and making English and, you know, Spanish and French, which she wrote in all of those languages, her own, and, and to service her rather than she serving it. Her language also served the struggle. Did you get a sense of that in, in the way she deploys language? That it's very urban. It's actually, you know, you could read into Zake and you could be uh, listening to a young girl from the Bronx, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, it could be, or several young characters from anywhere in New York City, you know, um, with the different intonations and, and and also uh, different occupations, you know, so so that she was right. able to capture pedestrian language. She was able to capture uh, working class people's language and their right. struggles and various aspects of, you know, urban life. That's what I find very exciting about her work, that it mm -hmm. does reflect the internationality of African people, but on a very grassroots level. Right. Yes. And also age. She wrote a lot in terms of uh, young people and what it was like to be a young colored girl growing up mm -hmm. and what that what that language, that vision is all about. So much has been said about her activism as a feminist. You know, what do you think her legacy is to young women, especially young black girls? the legacy of her writing. There was a memorial that was written in The Nation by a, a woman, I think she's in middle age, like in her 40s, Rebecca Carroll, who wrote an obituary for Ntozaki, and she talks just about that, like what does she want to leave for younger black women, and uh, Ntozaki addressed that. She said that um, she really did want to write for those who hadn't even been born. And this is a quote from Ndozaki. She says, I write for young girls of color, for girls who don't even exist yet, so that there is something there for them when they arrive. I can only change how they live, not how they think. And um, on my website, one of my inspirational sayings I have, I say, I dance and I write for my ancestors, for I have empowered myself to be their wildest dream. So I'm looking backwards, looking at what I am leaving in the name of my ancestors. She is looking forward to those who were yet to be born and who will arrive in a world that is very much still demeaning for them. And how could she leave something that would give them a sense of empowerment when they encounter this madness that um, that we're in in terms of our people. I really see that whole thing of the, the continuity in African thought between those who've gone before, those who are here now, and those who are yet to come really encircling her legacy and what we both were um, we're trying to do, and I'm still trying. You have presented such an exquisite picture 
sort of of the two of you standing in a particular moment, one pointing one way and facing one way and the other facing the in the opposite direction, you uh, gathering the past and her um, and Entusaki weaving the future. Um, it's such an exquisite visual that I, mm. yeah, um, thank you. And it's, it's, that, it's that continuity of the circle. Yes. The dance. Yes, mm. yes. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's take that except That's uh, Entusaki Shange herself. And then we'll One return. walking up Gordon House screaming, crying, the ghost of another one who was missing what I was missing. I wanted to jump up out of my bones and be done with myself. Leave me alone and go on in the wind. It was too much. I fell into a numbness till the only tree I could see took me up in her branches Held me in the breeze, maybe dawn, dew, that chill at daybreak. The sun wrapping up, swinging rose light everywhere. The sky laid over me like a million men. I was cold, I was burning up a child, and endlessly weaving garments for the moon with my tears. I felt found and felt God in myself. I found God in myself, and I loved her. I loved her fiercely. I found God in myself. I found God in myself and loved her fiercely. I loved her fiercely. I found God in myself. That's the closing poem of For Color Girls. That was a section of the closing poem from Four Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Was Enough. Um, I found God in myself. I found God in myself. I found God in myself and loved her fiercely. This is a theology. Yes. Mm-hmm. A, a living, changing, developing Theology. How did Entusaki, as she was going through, I know especially these last years with health problems, was she embracing the health challenges through any type of theological lens? Hmm. Well, um, I can't totally answer that. I don't know all the things that she was focusing on, but I do know that she had various tools. Mm. Um, she, I remember, um, I guess it might have been uh, maybe about four years, three to four years ago, she called me one night and she said that she, she really needed some help. She really needed to know how, how she could focus on her, her inner spirit. And uh, I gave her some breathing exercises, and the, and I actually went through the exercises with her on the phone and helped her through how to do these particular breathing exercises. Because I've been doing transcendental meditation since that same period where I met her, which has really, um, you know, uh, 
been a kind of rock bed of my of my life and and has allowed me to do so many things from having that tool so i uh i didn't teach her how to meditate but i taught her how to breathe and then to be able to focus in on her body that way and to change the energy in her body through her breath and um i know she got a lot out of that and she was also very spiritually oriented and, you know, believed in Orisha of the Yoruba and Santeria tradition. Mm. And I have uh, helped her with that as well and helped her with prayer. And when she was living in Oakland back in 2007, going to her house and helping her to construct her bedroom altar when she was really not doing very well physically and knowing that that was a big aid to her to have her spiritual altar in the bedroom where she was um, going through her convalescence. Mm. So she went through several um, different kinds of processes, uh, and um, she was aware of many different tools to help her through her challenges, her physical challenges. Mm. I remember one interview, I think, at Barnard, she was speaking about using the rosary as also a part of her her practice in terms of healing as she was making a transition towards wellness. And I think it's mm-hmm. quite interesting the rosary and the the making sure that she had her um, spiritual altar present. It's clear that she was very purposefully walking this life as a spiritual being. Um, oh, yes, most definitely. She she definitely did. She was counseled by Santeros in the Bay Area um, where she went to Bimbe's and um, definitely was exposed to Santeria, which, of course, um, has a, a kind of syncretic relationship between the traditional African religion and Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So she kind of embraced that path and she she would, um, you know, go both ways in terms of, you know, going to the river to get water for Oshun and, and praying on her rosary at the same time. Mm-hmm. The African way. Yeah. yeah. Now that she's <laughs> joined the universe, she's danced and joined the universe and, and she's dancing. returned. Yes. To the universe. I said to her, finally, you're in no more pain, and I'm happy for that. Well, you've answered my question then. (laughs) I want to say a very big thank you to you for making time to join us. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I just would like to say one more thing. I wrote an epitaph for her that is, um, uh, I think, very appropriate. And her, her agent who is organizing her memorial in Washington, D.C., November 12th. He liked this as well. I wrote, Endozaki was a colored girl who considered suicide, but realized that the rainbow of colors in herself was finally enough. Hmm. Well done. That is beautiful. Good job. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so, you know, we have to celebrate her life 
yes. and her contributions. And also, I need to mention and uh, that uh, she had finished a new version of For Colored Girls that is, in fact, going to be in the 2019 public theater season in New York. I don't know the dates yet, um, but they're working on it. And she had approved a, a director of the play. And so she and I have been talking about um, my coming to the premiere and being together for this this uh, this updated uh, revision of For Color Girls that will be opening in 2019. So we all have to be there and and celebrate you know, her continuing legacy. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you. And thank you, we, so much. I really appreciate your show. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you. Halifu. Have a good thank night. Thank you, Dr. Rosamari. It has been a pleasure as always. Uh, <laughs> all right. Carry on. Thank you. <laughs>